0: Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number four hundred and seventy-three. My name is Minter Dial, and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on this network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. And now I'd like to give a big thank you to the folks at Pega for sponsoring my podcast. Pega is a low-code platform for AI-powered decisioning and workflow automation. Its scalable architecture helps the world's leading organizations work smarter, unify experiences and adapt instantly so they're always ready for what's next. This week's interview is with Pega's Don Sherman. Don is CTO and Vice President of Product Strategy and Marketing at Pega, responsible for Pega's industry-leading platform and CRM applications. He's a musician, improv comedian, and a master of events on and offline. In this conversation with Don, we discuss his work at PEGA, his experience and lessons learned of moving the annual flagship conference from offline to online, how purpose comes alive as part of PEGA's modus operandi, the challenges with hybrid work, how PEGA brings simplicity to an ever-complexifying business world. You'll find all the show notes on minterdal.com and please consider to drop in your rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Don Sherman, I am delighted to have you on. Uh, Aside from being the CTO at Pegasystems, you are a, a man of conviction, of energy, and I'm delighted to be able to chat with you. In your own words, Don, how would you like to describe yourself?
1: Um, well, uh, I, I think first and foremost, I describe myself as a husband and father, since that's where, you know, uh, I think I get most of the most of my joy in my life. Um, I've been, you know, I think I've been really lucky in a career to find myself at a a, a position where I get to kind of operate at the intersection of technology and business. I get, you know, I, I get to bring a background as a technologist, um, as someone who's done software implementation and. God forbid, even a little bit of coding, but but also uh, as someone who you know likes being on the strategy side of the conversation, and and really likes the the sort of tackling the challenge of communicating the value of technology, but also the things that organizations need to do in order to achieve that value, right? Because it's not just about getting the tech in place; it's about actually putting the right mindset and the right people and the right skills in place to make it useful.
0: It's often the case that one might put the cart ahead of the, the horses when it comes to technology, because the reality is communication is deeply human.
1: Yes. Very much so. And I think, you know, one of the even over the last two years, I think we've learned just how important that deeply human connection is. Um and and what has what you have to do when when it doesn't happen by default, when you actually have to go out of your way to create it. Because I do think it's essential to how we work. I think it's essential to 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 how we find sort of fulfillment as as human beings.
0: Hmm. Well, I'd love to get into that in a bit. In your profile, Don, uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, you write, you are a guy who tries to live a yes and
1: life. Yes.
0: What does that look like? How do you how do you how do you make that come around in your day to day?
1: So yes, and um is a, a sort of tenet or philosophy that comes from improv comedy and um, i I've, I've been able to you know kind of parallel to my career do a decent amount of of improv and the idea with yes and is that you're always building on what other people have brought forward that as a, as an improviser one of the worst things that you can do is negate what somebody else has brought to the table or brought to the scene. So the idea is, you say yes, you you accept and embrace what they're bringing forward, and then you add your own, you build on it. And you know, I think a lot of um, a lot of life can be improved by taking that yes and approach, by you know saying yes to things, even to things sometimes that may feel outside your comfort zone or may feel feel new, but also having the confidence to bring the and. To, to bring the, the perspective or the insight or the experience that is uniquely you to the conversation. Um, and I think the combination of those two things, being open and welcoming of, of new ideas, but always trying to bring and add something, you know that's what leads to great collaboration. I think what it leads to great friendships and great relationships.
0: Hmm. And there's a point when we must cut down to a decision. Yes, so it becomes a and, and now we will choose the idea.
1: The, yeah, and, and the thing that I always find, you know, I've, I've taught a, a number of improv workshops in business, and I think, you know, the, the idea of yes and is not to supplant the fact that sometimes, especially in business, we need to say no. We need to evaluate the decisions on the table and then we need to pick one and move forward, right? Um, but but one of the other things that I think we often talk a lot about with my teams is, you know, the idea of disagree and commit, right? That that sometimes we we find ourselves making decisions in business that not everybody, that wasn't their, everybody's idea, we, we have picked one or we've picked a path forward. But, but at that point, I think that's where yes and becomes really important again, because we now need to all shift our mindset from debate to commitment right to yes that is what we're going to do and now how can I help make and bring that thing forward mm-hmm. so so absolutely you know we need to be able to have focus we need to be able to say no we need to be able to make decisions but I also think the the commitment that comes with yes and is is hugely important
0: it it brings up for me the, this idea of debate and in a boardroom, there's going to be the highest paid person, or maybe the CEO, and and therefore an attributed power that lies within, and, and a yesing, yes, and or yes siring, or whatever that goes with that. But the place for so you have brainstorming, and then there's place for challenge. So you can place it under a yes and yet that might be sugarcoating the fact that I'm saying no to that idea.
1: or or, or that, or that I'm disagreeing. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I've worked at PEGA for 25 years. And one of the things that I love about the culture is there is that element of challenge to it. There is that element of don't, don't take everything as a decision made, no matter who in the organization it comes from. Even if it comes from Allen. Even if it comes from Allen. Right. And, and, and I, you know, I think that, that, that having having that debate and having, you know, we talk a lot in the industry about thought leadership, right? And, And thought leadership comes down to, one, having a thought, right? So actually being able to, you know, bring forward your experience and consideration and having knowledge of whatever domain it is that you're talking about, that you can actually have a thought, right? And then having the conviction to lead with it, having the conviction to defend it and debate it and, and take it and take it forward, and I think that's uh, that that that's a that's a that's a culture that I find energizing to be a part of.
0: Mm, yeah, because I mean, at the end of the day, when you are just yesing all the time, that's uh, probably a, a recipe for failure. Because you know, like you say in strategy, it's all about choice and making that choice. So, don't what I've observed for having had been a, on the Pega journey for a few years now. You've been you moved the the, the Pega world online and you being a comedian are perhaps so perfectly suited to be some uh, entertaining aspect of course you're bringing content as well but i was wondering what you have learned from having moved pegaworld from a an offline in person to an online what has been the biggest challenges or the biggest learnings for you as an organization
1: well i i think the i think one of the biggest learnings was just how distinct and different an online event is from an in-person event. You know, you can't do a 2-3 day online event. No way. You, you can't. Nobody 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 wants to sit through 2 or 3 days of online Zoom conferences.
0: I don't right? have a sound effect for yawn.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you have to be you have to be so intensely respectful of the people's time. And so you have to make you have to be uh, you have to be dense in the sense that you're using that time well, and and then the other thing that you have to you have to do is you have to figure out moments of surprise, right? Moments of um, of awakening people, right? Because I think we spend a lot of time on Zoom meetings, and and I don't know about you, but you can kind of get into a Haze, right? And it's no kidding. When that can when that computer's up on your screen, there's lots of other stuff that will detract us from actually being um being fully engaged. So moments of surprise kind of help with that. I think you know, somewhere, somewhere along the line, somebody made a comment about the fact that as we move to online, we need to think less about being theatrical, which is what we did sort of in big conferences. And more about being cinematic, and how do you use the language of, um, of, the, of the video format itself to tell the story? So we've been playing with you know, and I'm I, I'm actually heading out to a, a studio tonight to do some dress rehearsals for for Pega World, which is coming up next week or you know, the, the coming weeks, and um, and it uh, it it really exploring how you use the video itself. To make the experience compelling and memorable, and keep people engaged, because it's not when you get somebody into a into a uh, you know into a conference room and you shut the doors and you throw a bunch of bright lights and loud music, you get their attention. When you're one of many videos competing on their screens, you have to be you have to be that much more compelling in order to to keep it.
0: I love that that move from theatrics to cinematics. That's really a good insight. And then on the other side, as you now think about going back to real world, or at least offline, maybe next year, is there things from the online experience that we can bring into it, or are we? I mean, and obviously, there's maybe the hybrid version where we're going to have to do on and off yes. to keep that thread probably going on. But is there anything that we can now bring from the, your digital experience of doing what you're doing with the the time constraint, the the notion of value and making sure that they're having their attention into the offline.
1: I I, I think so. Yeah, you know, I think one I think continue to reflect that, that that notion of of the time and the value, right? And that you when you when you're asking someone, and it feels now more than ever, right? Time and our focus is a uh, a commodity that there is not enough of. So when you ask for it, you have to make sure that you really use it. I think the other thing that that comes out of some of the virtual stuff is we've had to think about how do you do interactivity at a mass scale, right? And there's natural interactivity that happens in an in-person event. You walk around, you talk to people, you know, you go into a a demo booth and everybody can ask their questions, et cetera. but one of the things we've started playing with it you know, in these virtual events is interactivity at a massive scale. How do I do polling? How do I ask how do I keep questions flowing? How do I have a sort of live stream conversation that's almost happening simultaneously with some of the content? And um I think some of that can be really compelling and brought forward into uh, some of these more larger scale live events so that we're not just going back to you know ten thousand people sitting in an arena you know listening to a speaker speak for two hours but we retain some of that mass scale interactivity even in these larger events
0: yeah when we have a large event three days everyone's accumulated there's obviously an expectation for content and as an organization you need to deliver content what they're looking for and yet i've always felt and i mean i ran a, a fairly large company myself there's a you tend to forget that actually helping to network and do what we do in person takes time and you need airtime and, and space and, and allow for coincidence and serendipity to happen and not feel like I'm also missing out on content, you know, because that's also a little bit of a the FOMO story when you're at a big conference. Oh my God, I got to go back in. I don't have time to, to hang out, network, ask questions and converse with other attendees.
1: And, and, and a lot of times, I think, I think that's the thing that we've met, we, I, I think it's so much harder to get in a virtual event and that I'm looking forward to getting back to an in person Mm -hmm. is that you just, when you put a lot of people in one space, you get, as you say, those, the unintended coincidences, the side conversations, the networking opportunities, you know, and as, and, and as a company, you know, we believe the people who probably have the most to say about what we do isn't us, it's our clients. And so the best thing that we can do is create a forum where our clients can talk to other clients, right, and share what they've learned, share things that work, share things that haven't, right. And and that creating the space for that kind of discussion to happen has always been, you know, a huge part of what we wanted to do in an in-person event. And what I've been you know, what I've been really excited about is you know as as things are opening back up getting back into in-person client meetings even in some cases bringing uh, one or two clients together for a meeting or for a conversation you're starting to see some of that serendipity pop back in again and I think people find that you know once we get past the initial kind of haze of just it's just so exciting to see real people in person right. again <laughs> right well once you get past that you you then start seeing this deeper, uh, opportunity for how we engage
0: in, in a conference I'm speaking at, um, they were actually talking about the, the fear of coming back at some level and can, do I know how to network again? What are we allowed to do? How do you hug, shake hand, and all the other awkwardnesses that we've been going yeah. through. So we will be seeing about that. So um, for people who are listening on my show, I've had several guests on on the show. And one of the things I'm reflecting on is I feel like there's obviously you have a, a you are fast growing you've got a lot of customers I'm wondering what the discussion around community is at pega to what extent you you that that is a a concept you look at you nurture tell me where you are on that
1: I think you, community and the the idea of of ecosystem is a it is a the topic I probably Engage with pretty much once a day, at least, right? Um, and and I think the other the other thing that I would probably say is we're also increasingly realizing that it's communities, mm. right? Because, you know, in, in, in our client base, it's not one size fits all. Mm-hmm. There are IT leaders who have, you know, very specific sets of things that they want to talk about as they are managing their own migrations to cloud technologies, et cetera. You've got leaders in data science who are thinking about things like bias in the data and how do they actually build some of the skills to effectively use AI technologies to drive value. So a lot of what we think about is how both virtually and physically do you provide space for these communities to develop and making decisions about where where it makes sense for us to really drive and nurture and in some cases structure some of the communities. And where are the places where we just kind of want to drop a seed and then stand back and let the community run and form on its own. Mm. Um and and operate somewhat independently of us. It's right? very and tempting
0: that, to want to control it and put your put your stamp on it. And...
1: Right. Well, and 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 look, I think there's certain places where you know we want to we want to be feeding information for example into our developer community about best practices and new releases of the software and how and how we the things that we believe our developers need to really understand to be effective but also at the same time you know we do a lot of we have a lot of client communities where you know we we don't actually come to every meeting we don't actually come to every conversation they they want to be able to have that conversation as a group and they might invite People from Pega in, if there are certain topics that that group is interested, but it needs to be self-organizing, and the value of it is that it is a little bit of self-organizing, and there is a peer-to-peer connection, sort of without us coming in necessarily. And and I think that I think getting that right mix, right. I think there's a place for both, and I think it's really important to acknowledge that you know, especially in an ecosystem as large as ours, there are different interest groups and different audiences that need to have their own sort of small sets of connections that they can build.
0: So yeah, I know you guys have just done some research uh, around complexity, which is basically in, in every tagline you have where you guys crush business complexity. And I feel like that's clearly a big theme from my interactions with my customers. And I am now a consultant, although speaker first, hopefully, And many consultancies, you're going to hear them, we're going to make it simple. Consultancies like to to think that they make things simple. I I mean, that's what they talk about. What does Pega do differently to to make things simple and crush complexity?
1: Well, so I I think one of the things that we have to do a little bit is accept the fact that complexity isn't going to go away and you know potentially you know i think of this as a little bit of like you know we're moving towards a state of entropy right it's going to get more so right like and and that's i feel that is true in everything i feel that is true in the way that we work right and the the we're now shifting to a distributed nature right of of working and i think where we end up is probably actually going to be more sophisticated and more complicated than it was where we were before. Where we're going to have this mix of some people at home, some people remote, groups sometimes coming into the office, but not everybody will be in the office. So I still need to maintain a collaborative space for the people who aren't physically there, right? Like that. That that is going to be complex, and it's going to require us to think through it. I think the the world that we live in, you know, with pandemics and what's going on now in the Ukraine and some of the economic concerns, like we're going to have to continue to confront that. And, and then also, you know, I'm a, I'm a technologist and you go look at, you know, things like the um, Martech landscape that comes out every year or the cloud native computing foundation landscape of technology. Those things aren't getting simpler.
0: They are getting, they're multiplying like spores.
1: They're, They're multiplying like spores. And so, so I think the, the the thing that you need and what we want to try to provide to our clients is a way to guide through and cut through and manage the complexity to get to the things that are actually really important how does that technology deliver value to the business how do i get the most economies of scale out of how i use and run that technology how do i simplify an experience for a customer for an employee, so they can actually get to what they what they want to do, and the the metaphor that I that I often kind of think about is like if you think about something like the iPhone, the iPhone is a far more complicated piece of engineering than my Commodore sixty four was. I'm sure, right. It's far more complicated. The insides of it, you know, in, in the engineer who built the Commodore sixty four would try to open up the iPhone, and they would be completely lost. You know. But the iPhone is easier to use than my Commodore 64 was, Mm -hmm. right? It's actually an easier experience. It's more directly consumable by a user. So I think what we need to be thinking about is the complexity is not gonna go away, but how do we actually use that to drive simpler experiences, more accessible experiences for, for especially customers and employees?
0: Well, that would suit very well. The I don't know if it's your tagline exactly, but you call it for Peggy. You talk about build for change. Is it, would you call that characterize that as your purpose of the company, or is that just a tagline?
1: I, I think I think it's I think it is very much core to to the purpose. You know, because I think we believe fundamentally. And I you know there, this is a bit of a cliche, but you know, change is the constant, and I think that change is accelerating. I think that we are moving to a world that will be more change, right? I mean, just look at how much change we've gone through in the past couple of years, right? Um, And so the best thing that we can help our client organizations do is not necessarily try to anticipate what they're going to need in one to two to three years, because I don't know if anybody can predict it. But instead, how do you design an architecture in your technology, in your organization, in the skills of your people that is actually built to change, that is built for the acceptance of the fact that, that you need to be able to change? And that's, you know, I feel like one of the maybe places where we lost the thread a little bit on the idea of digital transformation was, we thought of it as sort of like an end state, a goalpost, a finish line to run across and like, woo, we're digitally transformed. Where I think digital transformation is more about just accepting the fact that you are going to be constantly changing and constantly transforming. And how do you build a business and a technology that's designed to do that?
0: I love that. I mean, ultimately, as you said at the beginning, it's really a lot about mindset. and And so much of these mindsets require flexing and practice. and And you let it go, think like I got there, then you'll be blindsided very quickly by the next you know, tsunami coming along. One of the we just talking about purpose for a second, when you look at rendering complexity more simple, finding ways to be strategic about your resources, because time, money is limited. And that's what strategy is all about. One of the ways I like to go about things, and and I'm wondering what to extend it, it, it's within your discourse, purpose is also a way of rendering simple the decisioning. That's to say, if you are, if you're aware deeply of your purpose, then you know that this is not part of it. Or maybe pragmatically you have to do things, but on balance as as a way to filter and, and decide yes or no, purpose can be a great guiding tool. To what extent is that brought in? Is that can that be part of the PEGA system when you input and you're working with a client and listen, hey, Don, I really want my purpose to to dominate in my decision making?
1: Yes. And you know, I without this may start getting a little bit deep into the tech, but there are a couple of places where we really try to drive that right so i think ai as an example right is sometimes not always but sometimes a solution in search of a problem right <laughs> we've got lots of yeah we're going to do some ai stuff what are we going to do do sound cool yeah. right we're going to do we're going to do some ai right where the way we try to get our clients to think about ai is start with the business outcome that you wanna drive. Start with where you're trying to get, right? And for a lot of our clients, that might be, I want to retain more customers by having better conversations with them. Or I want to um, reduce the burden on my customers in terms of getting service by being more proactive in how I engage with them, right? That's the outcome. That's actually what I'm trying to drive. And then the way I implement decision technology and AI technology is all about getting back to that, getting to that outcome. Um, We do the same thing when we think about workflow. You know, we, we, we tend to apply this concept of case management to workflow. And the powerful thing about case management is I think when it's done right, you start with the end state. You start with what, every time I run a process, every time I run a workflow, it's because I'm trying to get to something. I'm trying to actually solve something for my customer. I'm trying to resolve a service issue or fix an exception that caused a problem or deploy a new product or onboard a new customer so that their account is active. Like there is an outcome tied to that workflow. And when I think about workflow, I wanna start not with, well, what's the, what's the path that we do today, right? Go back and start with what's the outcome. And then what are the required steps? What do I absolutely have to do to get to that outcome? And how do I make that path through those steps as clean as possible and get people to that outcome as fast as possible? So we try, even in the way that we think about the technology and individual projects that we want, how do you put the outcome, what you're trying to achieve for your business, for your customer, for your employee front and center?
0: All right, so I'm, I want to get a little nerdy a second. Um, my son is a, he's learned coding, so I, I get to talk about all sorts of um, different coding platforms and stuff. And, and you guys are a low-code platform. And I, I was wondering to what extent, A, that participates in your ability to render complexity simple. And then two, how does the, what you just explained Get briefed into the Pega programmers who are doing the coding of your yeah. subsystem.
1: So, so I think the 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 power of a low code platform, right? And this is even before there was low code, or the market had defined low code. This was sort of how Pega was thinking about the problem, and this goes back to some of you know some of the insights that were the founding of the company, which is. How can I distill in what I'm trying to get my software to do back to what is the business outcome that I'm trying to achieve? And how can I provide tools, whether they're forms, you know, visual tools, graphical tools that allow the person and the people who best understand the business to put their requirements into the platform. If I can eliminate as much as possible, the step of translating, this is what I want the software to do for me because of this business value into well this is the if then else and for loops that need to run in a series of code to make that happen as much as I can eliminate that transfer trans uh, translation and have the actual platform do that translation for me. Then. I have a better hope of getting what the business actually wants. I get out of the complexity of the the technical implementation and I focus instead on again, what am I trying to actually get this software to do? And also ideally I get my business and my IT people looking and talking in the same language Mm -hmm. about what they're trying to make the software do. Not sort of talking in incommensurable terms right about what languages that don't fit but no we're starting to talk in the same language and i think that that becomes hugely helpful
0: so let me let's zero down on the the business developers your salespeople, and your programmers yeah two two very different sets of people and which is harder to get the programmers to think about business or the business developer salespeople to get to know understand coding. Because there has to be also a, a level of of empathy or or sympathy for the coders world. Uh, as in, you know, things bug and, and shit happens.
1: Well, and and I think the I think the other thing that, that there has to be like sympathy for is the fact that IT is not getting easier, it's getting harder. Oh, no kidding. Right. The 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 pressures around security. And data privacy and protection, the complexities that we talked about around cloud architectures, right? Microservices architectures are wonderful and great, but microservices are a lot more complicated than monoliths, right? Like they just are. So, so there, there's there's inherent there's inherent increasing complexity in the IT space, and I think that the word you used is empathy, and I think that is really, really important. I but i do believe that the emerging need in an organization is for people who can sit on both sides of that line that as a technologist a vital skill for me and we did some we did some um some other research sort of on the state of it and one of the things that we heard from it leaders was the growing importance of soft skills in their IT department. Hmm. I need communicators. I need listeners. I need coaches and mentors. I need need the soft skill part of my organization as much as I need JavaScript programmers and people who know Python, right? So so I think that that, that, that's increasingly important. If you wanna be an IT leader, You've got to be able to translate the technology into business because the just purely the act of coding, they're either low-code platforms or cheaper places in the world sometimes where that can get done, right? But the translation and the understanding of how that technology can solve a business problem, that's a skill that's hard to automate out. That's a skill that's that's you know harder to take away. And I think the flip side is true on the business side, right? I think you know, the 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 truism, you know, from Mark Andreessen, I think it was originally, that like every company is a software company. Well, you know, that that then implies that every business person is has to be thinking about how they use software to run their business. And I think the really great business leaders will look more and more like product managers. Will look more and more like people who have a deep understanding of a business domain and a business problem, but also have some pretty strong thoughts and opinions and understanding. Of how to use software and technology to address that business domain. So I don't know if one is harder or easier, but I think both are absolutely essential.
0: Well, I think that's a great conclusion. Um, I don't know um if you know, but I, I wrote a book about AI and empathy. So that topic is of particular interest to me. And I, I know that you you um you you make empathy an enormous part of the PEGA system. In the decision making, but I wanted to just start with the fact that you guys just published an ebook on the state of AI in business today, and yeah. I'd love it for you to give me a, maybe what the most interesting insight or or some factoid within it um, to give us a, a, an intrigue and interest to go get that book.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think so. I think I think a couple of things, right? You know, some of the things that we discovered is you know potentially. Um, Non-controversial, right? Organizations are continuing to make massive investments in AI. You know, they're making those investments because they have seen benefit, they have seen success.
0: Well, hence the the idea of trying to find a solution to use it, (laughs) or find a problem to fix with it.
1: Yeah, and I and I think and I think organizations that the thing that I I've always kind of said about AI is part of the and and as a software vendor and perhaps potentially responsible for some of this, right? But AI is actually not one big thing. AI is a bunch of very distinct technologies that each solve very distinct and specific business problems. Right. You know, if you like the, the 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 technology and the use of say voice recognition and how you think about that and how you apply it and where you can use it in your business to drive efficiencies is very different than decision optimization and real time decisioning and how you might use that to change conversations right they're both mm-hmm. ai they're both incredibly powerful technologies mm-hmm. but you can't think of them as the same thing you actually have to think of them as distinct like unique tools in the toolbox um and so i think there's also this understanding that i'm going to need people who bring in a combination of you know both business savvy understanding but also some of the analytic skills right that sit behind sit behind the sit behind the the cover there um and i think there's also this understanding that's grown that this isn't just now futuristic stuff for google and tesla to play with this is stuff that i can apply inside a business at massive scale to deliver incredible value if I'm thoughtful and focused about it.
0: And being thoughtful and focused, that I would almost say is being strategic. And so many companies pretend or think they have strategy, but I see endless times examples of companies with strategies that have 10 bullet points to them.
1: Yes. And and getting to a focus on your strategy, and you know the the organizations that we've seen be most successful with this, the AI is just a becomes a reflection of the brand value and strategy of the organization, right? You know the organizations that I've seen be incredibly empathetic with. The the way they use AI is because as a brand that's how they think, and AI is just it's a tool that allows them to do it at scale. It's a tool that allows it them to operationalize that, but AI doesn't replace the fact that that's got to be in your brand values, right? That's got to be that's got to be a, a a way of thinking, and you've got to have the understanding and the commitment of your customers to make that happen, and then AI can become an incredibly powerful tool to scale it out into every time you have a customer conversation, right? But, but, but AI on its own isn't going to do that.
0: Yeah, well, specific to this notion of AI and empathy, at the, on the one hand, if you're not empathic, then what sort of brief are you providing for the programmers? Right. Two, if you encode empathy into your AI, but the rest of your organization, the people dealing with people aren't empathic, then you're going to have a misfit. Everyone's only going to want to speak to your empathic chatbot. Right. And and three, in the end of the day, um, if you don't have an empathic organization and you delegate it out to your AI, why are you going to keep your employees? Why are they going to stay with you? Because you're a bunch of, you know, less empathic individuals.
1: Well, well and, and and I I don't think, I don't think that you can, you can't have, I don't believe, a truly empathic, you know, AI technology. Say you're using AI for decisioning, right? AI, AI and and the decisioning technologies, they're just, they're optimization technologies, right? They're really good at looking at data and optimizing it, right? But AI isn't going to decide what you optimize for, right? You as a business have to be able to tell the AI well. I want you to optimize for customer experience, or you know, what does that look like? What does that look like? Or I want you to optimize to sell as much stuff as you can, right? And what does that look like? And and the right companies, the companies that bring empathy to us, are figure out how to draw that balance, right? Where it's not just can I sell as much stuff as I can, but can I balance that with the relevance and the need and the immediacy for the customer, and understanding that if i'm having an interaction with my customer and i know that they've got a point of need i know that for example the covid pandemic has just hit and from what i understand of them and their income the best thing for them might be to actually recommend a little bit of loan forgiveness or temporary stop of payment on their loan even though that's not selling them new stuff right that's an empathetic decision to make for the customer mm. that ultimately is probably going to make the customer love your brand. Yeah. Right. And it's going to build that deep relationship. And it probably it's in long term, it's the right decision for the business. Right. I'm not, I'm not saying you do this because you don't believe it's the right decision for the business. But but that empathy, that empathy is there because your people have built it into how they put those decisions together and how they use AI to get them. Not because the AI magically discovered it for you. Like AI is a tool. It has I don't believe it has empathy or not. I think we as human beings and our use of the tool optimize it and configure it and set it up to operate in ways that we that we believe are empathetic and that align with how we want to interact with humans and with customers and with employees.
0: And ultimately when you are briefing it that way I think an understated value to doing that is the engagement you get from your own employees. You talked at the very beginning about employee experience using the material. If you have a purpose that's just on a wall that doesn't get lived, you're just rolling eyes. If you have a purpose and you actually say, hey, listen, you guys, we need to reduce the loan requirements or whatever, because we have a humane understanding of what's happening here then that just makes you get the good feeling part. And we're not being philanthropic because we ultimately know that this is about building long-term loyalty, but right. short-term loss, long-term gain.
1: That's right. That's right. And and also I think the other thing that's, that's you know, important, especially as we think about employee experience is being conscious and aware of where and how you use technology like it, like AI, to actually get out of the way of the employee doing the thing that the employee wants to do, mm-hmm. right? Like the best software and the best systems to me are effective because they give the employees, the users of the software, the information, the tools at their fingertips, in some cases, the guidance That means they don't have to deal with the complexity of like, well, what system does this data live in again? Or what are the rules for managing this kind of request, right? The system would do that for them. So they can focus on being the human stuff, on listening to the customer, on using that conversation to build a relationship, on bringing their own um, problem-solving skills and experience to bear on the problem. And I think that's, to me, that also is about being empathetic. About you know understanding the 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 employee experience and really thinking about how we use technology to get out of the way of the employee and make them make make them not just not just more effective, but let them you, do what they can do so well. Let them bring that forward.
0: Hmm. So last um, piece before I, we close off. Um, the, in your report, uh, your research on hybrid work. Because you, you um, obviously with, with what's been going on, there's been the challenge of the pandemic, the war, the economic situation. But there's also now an imposition, or at least a, a highly recommended imposition, if you will, of of more hybrid work as we come out of the pandemic. Can you tell us what maybe what might be the the what the research said about that, and maybe in your words, Don, as you you yourselves grapple with it within Pega, what are the types of best recipes? To help make hybrid work work, I feel it's going to be very hard.
1: I, I I think it is too. So over half the employees that we surveyed felt that the pandemic was going to make businesses more complex in the long run, and um, one in three, you know, felt that hybrid work was going to make them their jobs more complex, right? And for a lot of them, that has to do with the fact that you know hybrid work, and I think we've all experienced this, right? It the work life balance gets complicated.
0: Oh God, yeah. Where's right. the line?
1: We, we, right, you don't you don't have that clean line of a you know leave get start my commute that opens the work day. I shut down my computer. I start my commute home that closes the work day, and I have family time or personal time or whatever time on the other side of that. So I think that I think that complexity is certainly there. I think it's also really important that. We become much more thoughtful in how we work, you know. So we've you know, we've gotten really pretty structured about things like no meeting Fridays, right? And that you know, frankly, can't just be a suggestion. It actually has to be something that's lived from the leadership down, um, because I think it is, especially in a hybrid world. If you're not careful. Because you want to try to maintain connection and check in with people, you can find yourself, you know, in back-to-back Zoom calls all day and then figuring out well, when do I, when do I actually do the work that came out of all those Zoom calls, right? So, so doing things like that, you know, establishing work time for people. Um, and I think also, you know, encouraging and demonstrating with managers the importance of. If we are going to ask people for hybrid work, we have to be willing to also be flexible in the business, and that means that, you know, I have to move a meeting because somebody needs to take their kid to soccer practice, or, um, you know, I have some I have some employees who need you know from two to five they need that that time, but I know that they're going to pop back on at like seven thirty and catch up on emails from the day, right? And and building that level of trust, but also flexibility, empathy for everybody's unique situation. And then I think I think the final thing is as we come back to the office, we need to be thoughtful about how we do it. There's nothing worse than going into the office and then just sitting on Zoom calls all day. <sighs> like, right? So, so I think we also need to be we need to use the return to office in a we, we need to be very, very specific about we're going to come into the office and we're going to bring these people together today to accomplish this. Right. And then we can go back and we go back to remote and we can do that. But, but it needs to be, it needs to be thoughtful. And I think we're always going to have, you know, mix of people there. There are lots of folks in our organization who like being in the office, you know, especially, frankly, if you're in your twenties, and you're living in an apartment that you share with a couple roommates, and 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 a lot your of your parents, social, or your parents, and a lot of your social connection is is from work. You'd rather be in the office, and that's oh, great, yeah. you know. But there's um, so many so,
0: there's so many companies I see that say we'll we'll do we'll have office work Tuesday Tuesdays and Thursdays, but then they don't architect the work on Tuesdays and Thursdays to make it worthwhile
1: to be office work, right? That's right. right. And I think and and I think that's and I think that's where we need we need to figure out what that thoughtfulness is, so that that it, it we are actually. I think that there are benefits in hybrid work and remote work. I think there's absolutely benefits in bringing people together in person to do things, but I think we need to we actually need to exploit the benefits of each, and not operate across purposes to each other.
0: One of one of the good things of the the pandemic I think is is somehow it did blur the line between work and personal life. Because before I think there was a tendency to say, well, you know, what's at home is stays at home or what's at work goes but then we we completely obviated everything around our, our personal lives, the fact that you play guitar and yeah. and and you know, I have kids and oh my God, he's a human being. He's not just a robot. Um I, I say he because that would be typically the thing. And, and and yet um we also need to know to respect people's emotions and, and the challenges they have. So I really enjoyed your ideas there for making hybrid work where I think that people, if only a third in your study said, it's going to make it more complex. I think they really actually haven't thought it through enough. It should be much higher number of people thinking it's going to be a shitstorm. storm. Yes. Um, Don, we have a uh, PEGA world coming up. Yes. What, um, what would you say will be a, a re the h- biggest reason for coming on to check it out? And, uh, and who, what type of clients, do you, are you looking for it, Pega? What do you think are the, are the people who need you most?
1: Well, so, so I, 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 I think maybe the, the, the two questions have the same answer, right? So I think oh. the number one reason to get there is to actually hear from other clients, right? Um, from what they've done and how they've used technology to be successful, right? So you're gonna get a chance to hear among others from at Peg World, from folks like um, Lloyds Bank and um, T-Mobile, and booking.com and ford motor company right and so i think the kinds of clients and the people that you know that i think will really benefit from that are organizations that are you know struggling with those kinds of economies of scale operating you know large in some cases multinational organizations that operated across multiple product lines right where the complexity just gets multiplied and multiplied and multiplied um and how do you begin to cut through some of that and really focus on the employee, focus on the customer experience? Um, so I think you're going to hear you're going to hear a lot of examples of how organizations have done that and how and get very tactical. You know, low code is great. How do you how do you roll out what we've called a low code factory at enterprise scale? So that if you're an organization, you know, like and Ford is going to speak about this, if you're an organization that wants to use this low code technology, how do you do it in such a way that, you know, your IT department isn't running million dollar projects five years from now to clean up all these low code apps that are messy and right, you know, security holes, et cetera. So how do you, how do you again, build for change? How do you set up the architecture in the organization that's gonna allow freedom and allow flexibility, but also in, to ensure that we need to do the things right around security and maintainability and scalability so this, these platforms can last years, decades into the future.
2: I
0: remember in my time working at L'Oreal where we had upgrades and, or times when we were changing systems. And I know that that could look like an ominous or big topic, like you are saying, that can really eat up a whole bunch of your programmers' time. Yes. In, in a short sell, how how easy is it to integrate Pega into my system?
1: yeah and w- one of the things that we we've built pega is it was built from the ground up for interoperability because so much of what we help organizations do it's not about replacing individual big systems like your sap or your crm i think a lot of the complexity is the fact that your employees have to and customers have to navigate the gaps between those systems themselves yeah so if we can act as the glue they connect those back up, whether from a workflow perspective or from a common decisioning perspective in order to, to, to use that data to inform customer decisions. That, that's where we can drive the value. So we've built the architecture and we've built the technology such that it can work with Salesforce. We have clients where Salesforce is their front end, Pega is their workflow engine and it actually updates the back end in SAP, but the experience is seamless for the, the employee. And I think that's the important part.
0: Well, that sounds good. I like it. So uh, May 24th, nine o'clock Eastern Standard or Eastern Daytime uh, will be Pega World. That's coming right up. Uh, what's the best way to follow what you're up to? Do you write? Do you tweet? Give us your, your, your handles.
1: Yeah, I tweet. You can find me on LinkedIn, just Don Sherman. Um, or you can find me at Don Pega on Twitter. So, uh, I hope Well, I'm- is that
0: Don Pega? It's Mr. Pega, uh, you know, Don, yeah. El Don, Don El Don Don Pega, Don, yeah. Don, Don yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lovely having you on the show, Don. Thanks very much. Looking forward to Pega World in
1: a couple of days. All right,
0: thank you so much. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash. Dial You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on Minterdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. <laughs>
2: I'm a convinced man, building an urge. I'm a convinced man, to live and die submerged. A convinced man in the arms of a woman. I'm a convinced man, challenge my fate. I'm a convinced man, competition's in me. A convinced man Arms of a woman.
1: World's best known investor and Wall Street expert Warren Buffett once said, Wall Street is the only place that people ride to in a Rolls Royce to get advice from those who take the subway. Mr. Buffett's quote is remarkably accurate, but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing? Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo for a podcast known to move the needle for investors.